in 10 years or when you're 80 or when you're 90, do you want to look back? Is because even if you are 89, wouldn't, and you passed away a year later, wouldn't that 12 months even fighting back and getting as much freedom as you got, wouldn't that be worth it? Isn't the only thing worse than an eating disorder for four or five or 50 or 60 years, an eating disorder for 60 years in one day? Hi. I'm your host, Imogen Barnes, an inspired mental health advocate, eating disorder survivor, and your most fierce recovery companion. You're listening to Empowered, a empowerment podcast that celebrates demolishing your limiting belief systems, inspires growth, and focuses on integrating your values into your goals and behaviors. If you're ready to be motivated, educated, and inspired to start your journey to recovery, in whatever form that takes, listen in and prepare to be empowered. Hello, hello, and welcome or welcome back to Empowered. It is so incredible to have you here. You might have noticed that I took a week off from podcasting last week. It was actually entirely accidental and impromptu, um, but I just had to alter my recording schedule. Um, Not to worry, it actually turned out to be for the greater good because it became a lesson in me tolerating imperfection and being okay with spontaneous changes to my plan. Um, So I am grateful to past versions of myself for practicing self-compassion so as to take the pressure off versions of my present self that are faced with all kinds of different obstacles. And yes, that's that's life. And I am grateful that I'm so much better at tolerating discomfort nowadays. Honestly, though, what is the use of getting worked up over a little schedule change? Honestly, it's a lot of energy exerted that doesn't really need to be exerted at all. Um, There is way more exciting things to focus on in life. uh, So I'm glad I can finally do that and just be like, okay, Imogen, this didn't go to plan. That's totally okay. We'll just move on. Anyway, on to today's podcast. I just finished interviewing the absolutely extraordinary Mia Findlay. If you're at all familiar with the eating disorder recovery space, particularly if you're an Australian, then you're going to know the amazing Mia. You'll hear her speak to her experience with an eating disorder and recovery in a very short period of time. So I won't elaborate too much other than to say that she is just a fierce survivor who is making waves in both the professional treatment and advocacy space, as well as the lives of individuals currently battling their own eating disorder. Mia is an ambassador for the Butterfly Foundation here in Australia and is helping to bring about systemic change with regard to the recognition, care of, and approach to healing eating disorders. She is a coach herself and exists in all her glory in several online forms. And you can find links to her fabulous work in the show notes below. I'm also going to leave a trigger warning here, as I do whenever the discussion of eating disorders and mental health arises on this podcast. Mia and I do delve into some pretty deep conversations in this episode, not just surrounding eating disorders, but surrounding other comorbidities and mental illnesses too. So if these are subjects which disturb your peace in any respect, please feel free to click away now and to protect your own serenity. And like usual, I'll leave the links to support systems in the show notes below if this episode happens to trigger anything for you. And one last disclaimer before we get into this. Odie, my puppy, makes a virtual appearance towards the very end of the show. Poor Mia is in the middle of introducing her incredible private practice and fellow treating professionals when Odie sneezes and 
completely steals her thunder. <laughs> so sorry in advance to those listening and, of course, to Mia for the fact that Odie decided to take center stage at just a really, really bad time. <laughs> anyway, enough blabber from me. Let's listen to this incredible episode with an incredible human. Welcome, beautiful Mia. It is a lovely day to have you here. I mean, it's a little bit miserable weather-wise. I'm not sure. How's the weather like down your side of the world? <laughs> it's better than we thought. We meant to get 10 days of rain. Yesterday was glorious, uh, which felt like a real gift because it was meant to be torrential. But there's nothing better than like warm, fluffy socks, good movie, trivial pursuit. I've got a puzzle sitting behind me. No complaints. Oh, my goodness. You consider, do you know, I actually idolise people that have the patience for puzzles. Can you can you sit down and do a puzzle by yourself and be really content with it? It took practice. Recovery taught me that. All those distraction techniques that feel like, you know, your skin's on fire because you're not used to sort of being patient and moving through those feelings. Yeah. Um, but now it's sort of like a cornerstone for coping and distracting. And yeah, I love it. I absolutely love it. It's good to do with people too. It's a nice little thing to just have in the house to kind of return to and it brings you all back together. Yeah, it does. It almost becomes, we have it every Christmas because my sister and my brother-in-law love puzzles. And so we do a family puzzle every Christmas and it becomes quite competitive towards the end to who can get it actually happening the fastest. Yeah. It's a good time. Um, But I can't sit and do them by myself. Maybe that's something I really need to work on. Um, But it is good recovery before we've even right off the bat, we're talking about recovery, but learning to sit with and actually be patient and maybe work on a project that isn't just trying to preoccupy yourself from, you know, performing disordered behaviours. Yeah, distraction is a skill. Needs yeah. to be just like anything else. Absolutely. So, Mia, I am sure that our wonderful audience is very familiar with your work because you are profound and you are so loud in this space in the best way possible. You are so looked up to. But would you like to introduce yourself for all of our listeners? Uh, so my name is Mia Findlay. I am probably better known across social media as what Mia did next, which is really where sort of my story starts from day one. When I went into recovery, I recorded a little video for myself as a bit of a, bit of a bookmark to be able to come back and reflect on whether it was, I don't think I had any more grandiose plans of coming back and uh, looking beyond like a week or a month. I didn't think I'd get much further than that in recovery when I first started out. Um, Ended up running out of space on my iPad, recording these little videos, put them up on YouTube. Uh, Took a while for people to find them, um, but it turned into a bit of a community. There's about 60,000 people over there now. Um, And it really was just a diary that then turned into advocacy. As I got better, I could sort of hear this chorus coming back to me in the comments saying, you know, you were so lucky to get treatment. I wish that I could access that. I started hearing about all the stats around, you know, highest mortality rate, lowest funding, 37 public hospital beds, and none of it made sense to me. Always loved an underdog story and it really got my back up. So as my recovery got stronger, this advocacy kind of took uh, place of my story on the channel. And through fundraising, I think there was one fundraising thing we did. I think we raised about $10,000 and I got a phone call out of the blue from Butterfly saying, can you come and speak with us? Can you come and do some work with us? That was a little over four years ago. Um, They brought me on as their ambassador. And then through Butterfly as well, I... um, 
found out about coaching. Uh, Carolyn Coston, who's a giant in this space, uh, she essentially introduced residential treatment to the US. We have just opened our first residential up in Queensland, Wondanerida, based on her treatment model. Uh, she now trains coaches and therapists. So I became a CCI coach and started up my own practice. I now hire other coaches. I've got one in Belgium, one in LA, bringing somebody else on in Australia. Uh, so that one little video all those years ago, happiest accident of my life and turned into something uh, that I think if you went back and time traveled and told me uh, almost a decade ago, would be very surprising. <laughs> absolutely. I think that's an absolutely phenomenal story, especially because nowadays the concept of being an advocate is kind of probably much more well-known than it was back when you initially started. I think that's true. Yeah. yeah. And it seems like a lot of it, I, like I, I can speak for myself. I went into the idea of advocacy with a great deal of intent, but it's almost like you slip, like you just tripped in and have had the most impactful effect in the world. That's it's really just. Funny. Yeah. I was always, it really spoke to my personality beforehand. Like I was always like me. I got sent to boarding school. There was a reason for that. I was very strong-willed. And I remember my principal um, wrote in my report card in year 11 or 12, like Mia has a very strong sense of justice. She needs to rein it in from time to time. And wasn't that a premonition? Um, but I that was such a part of who I was that recovery for me, some of its most powerful um, impact was not just like the getting better, but it really connected to so many of my values that brought that really determined um strong-willed person back up to the surface so as much as you know there was energy going out it benefited me I think in more ways than it ever could have benefited you know anyone stumbling across that channel it just gave me far more than it put out for sure yeah, yeah it was like you were able to do it for yourself and you accidentally did it for the people as well yeah. And then hearing those stories, I mean, you can't hear about people struggling in that way and having so much motivation and desire to get better. And a roadblock is not motivation or wanting better for themselves, but just logistical stuff where, you know, that just, I'm a very logical person. One plus one just didn't equal two there. That just did not make sense. Um, and it's been incredible to see how much this discussion and conversation has changed, how much conversation around funding and, you know, now speaking to people in, um, you know, uh, positions within the government, state and federal, people are interested, they're listening, we're actually making headway. It's just a lot has, it doesn't seem like it from the outside, from the inside, a lot has happened in 10 years, a lot. Oh, absolutely. And when you can sit back and actually appreciate that as both someone who's experienced an eating disorder and someone who's advocating for the, you know, the rights of people with eating disorders and everything that goes along with that. I think you can get this really profound view of what's actually happening and appreciate the movement that's being made from so many different like perspectives. I think that's, yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's a huge privilege to work alongside Butterfly. I was at uh, lunch with them a couple of weeks ago, talking to sort of major donors and we were, sort of having to give them the reality of what's going on, you know, the fact that, you know, funding is where it is and we don't have any help in regional areas, which has now been aided by, you know, telehealth being made more available. But their feedback was like, wow, there's a lot to do. And we were like, no, 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 relative to where it's been. 
great things are happening. Like we have a Medicare number. And they're like, that sounds like it should have been a thing for a while. And we're like, we know, but we threw a parade. Like people have worked very hard and a lot, of, a lot has happened. A lot has happened. A lot has happened. You know, as much as we've got to focus on uh, the reality and some of the doom and gloom to get people to understand where it is, we've also got to celebrate, you know, how much has changed and how much uh more help we've been able to get out there which is significant um yeah I think it's only relatively new well it is only relatively new the Medicare number and that meaning that people can access far more sessions with psychologists and dietitians than they ever have I think it's 40 at the moment and I remember when I was first diagnosed it was 10 it was like oh thank you seeing my psychologist 10 times a year is yeah, thank you. That's really, that's really <laughs> helpful. Yeah. And then the added, I mean, it, none of it makes sense in that then you've got to go back to your GP to have that extended, which is more cost, which is more time. I was the same. So I was 25 when I went into recovery. Uh, and I think that that's so, the way that it's been set up is so reflective, not only of the fact that we have no understanding generally how complex these illnesses are and, you know, the length of time it takes uh, to recover and the resourcing we need. It's not usually just a psychologist. If we can, we want far more angles than that covered. But also um, that it was so indicative of the fact that we did just assume it was young, you know, uh, affluent, white uh, teenage girls purely who were suffering from this as opposed to someone like me who was not earning an awful lot of money living out of home at 25 uh, who beyond that 10 sessions was really strapped financially to be able to cover something I was so keen to pursue again that logistical thing if we can get people in a place where they want to get better which is a struggle in and of, of itself and then we're cutting them off after 10 sessions it's just you know, um, it's sort of like handing someone a life raft and then snatching it away from them just as they start to kind of get their feet under them. Um, so, yeah, I think I, I think it's a lovely thing that we can now say that's a thing of the past um, and hopefully it's going to mean that we can uh, continue to build on that foundation and especially with places like Wondinerida, you know, that really important institutional change from a treatment perspective is where we really need to put our focus now. Yeah, absolutely. There's gaps being filled everywhere and that's like finally happening and it's, and it's incredible. Mia, would you like to give uh, our listeners a bit of an insight into your personal journey? Sure. So, so um, it, officially speaking, I had an eating disorder for about six years from the ages of 19 to 25. I never had a good relationship with food or body. I never had a peaceful relationship with my body. I was always a taller kid. I'm six foot now. And that happened when I was about 11, going from like five, seven foot to six foot in a matter of about a month was a fun experience. So I was always taller and like bigger than the other kids. That's obviously going to bring attention, unfortunately, negative attention. I was bullied uh, pretty heavily in my primary school years. I was really lucky to have a solid little group of friends, you know, one of which Josie, she's been my best mate for almost 30 years. So in that regard, I was really, really lucky. But even though I had that support, it really made a pretty significant mark. It kind of became this foundational part of how I saw myself was that I was different and I was wrong and I needed to be smaller and I needed to shrink myself. 
Uh, I also grew up in a fairly uh, chaotic home. I have wonderful mum and dad, a not so wonderful stepdad who was pretty, um, home was a pretty unsafe place mentally and emotionally. So coming from that background and knowing how eating disorders kind of thrive, they have a multitude of factors and I kind of was ticking a lot of them off from a very young age. Uh, kind of a breeding ground waiting there to, to um, for an eating disorder to appear. Um, high school, I didn't love my body. I, again, not a totally peaceful relationship with it, but it wasn't at the forefront of my mind. Um, and then as I got towards uh, university, uh, there were a series of things which happened in my family and uh, sort of that first year of uni and all that disruption where it just kind of uh, came roaring in very, very quickly. So at the same time, I developed depression and anxiety and looking back, eating disorder really showed up trying to perform a function it's not very good at, uh, which it was trying to do something helpful. How it executed that was uh, pretty maladaptive. Um, and it started off as binge eating disorder, which then sort of morphed into bulimia as those purging behaviours came in. And then uh, ultimately the majority of my diagnosis was anorexia binge purge subtype. So even though anorexia is the dominant sort of image or diagnosis we hear about, there's such a variety of illnesses and then subtypes beyond that. And they're shapeshifters. So when people say to me, what eating disorder did you have? I'm like, at which time? <laughs> and that's what we see with a lot of people is that it really is uh, so, um, it's so malleable. It really does sort of change uh, depending on uh, what function it's trying to perform or, or how the behaviours or the, uh, the thinking is changing. Um, and like I said, I, I was out of home. I travelled. I moved to London for a year. I was working in high-stress environments in uh, private equity and investment banking. Uh, I socialised. I had a good group of mates. I dated. I did all the normal early 20s stuff. And no one picked up on it. Even though I sat in that stereotypical diagnosis, nobody picked up on any red flags. I think maybe mum once or twice picked up on uh, and questioned without knowing what she was questioning. Um, but uh, really the tipping point for me wasn't the physical element. It wasn't the behaviours. It was my mental state. So probably a good Thing to put a trigger warning on this one. Uh, so I'd suffered from suicide ideation for about 18 months to two years prior to going into recovery. And the thing which actually triggered my recovery was a suicide attempt. So it was about a year and a half after I got back from London, I'd lost my job. I pushed all my friends away. I'd ended a relationship. I wasn't speaking to my family and was just in a very, very hopeless state. And in the lead up to that had actually called Butterfly Foundation. So they've been this like little consistent presence in my life because I Googled, you know, I do this weird stuff with food and my head is a mess. Uh, and it was like eating disorder. I had no idea. I had no language for it prior to that. And I reached out to them and had a quick chat on their, um, their hotline just to kind of explore talking about it and, you know, whether I was, you know, going down the right path. Uh, instinctively thinking it was something connected to my food and you know my relationship with my body and by my next call was to my mum 
and then my next call was to my GP and within days I was sitting in front of a specialist which at the time because of my ignorance about eating disorders generally I thought that was par for the course it was a big surprise to me that that is an uphill battle for the majority of people that most people are not going to receive that kind of help and kind of response um I was seeing that psychologist for about a year and she was absolutely phenomenal she helped to save my life uh, in so many ways and then obviously that crosses over with what I was doing on YouTube and then the story kind of picks up from there as far as the advocacy stuff and what I'm doing now um but the good news is it was almost 10 years ago and a lot of it is actually hard to remember which I think is one of the most comforting things we can tell people is not only that you forget so much of the darkness of your eating disorder but you actually start to get a lot of the recovery stuff in detail as well um, that you can move away from it entirely which I now consider myself fully recovered Carolyn Coston has that definition of fully recovered um, and I certainly resonate with that description which uh, is extraordinary given I didn't really know it was a thing for quite a while yeah I think that's amazing. I don't think I've ever actually heard someone voice that, but it's a really phenomenal concept that you can actually forget part of the, like the grueling part of recovery. And I think it's also really nice to highlight or comforting, you know, uh, to highlight that recovery isn't all sunshines and rainbows. In fact, it probably for temporarily puts you in more discomfort than using your eating disorder behaviors would. And it's really, really refreshing to actually hear someone acknowledge that and tell you that, no, actually, you're going to forget about that. You know, that will not always be something that dominates your life, that pain that recovery temporarily inflicted upon you. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's also, you know, and this might be some of, some of my memory loss, um, there were parts of recovery I loved. Like I, we touched on earlier how much it connected to sort of those inherent healthy self-values that were there before the eating disorder popped up. Um, but as far as, you know, the self-exploration and connecting to others and finding purpose and uh, understanding why I in particular had been vulnerable to an eating disorder and all of those traits and uh, all of those uh, quirks and idiosyncrasies that could either be strengths or they could be things that contribute to destructive behaviour and then realising how much positive control I had over all of those things if I chose to be intentional with what I did with them um I loved it you know I didn't love all of it I don't want to sell recovery as like a cruise it's not um but there were some parts of it that were incredibly transformative uh there's that beautiful quote from you know this something this is really scholarly eat pray love by Elizabeth Gilbert <laughs> where she talks about going to this beautiful place in Rome called the Augustine, which I actually went to when I was sick um, because this quote really resonated. This is before I went into recovery and it was shut down because they were, they were, they were going through some kind of preservation process with it. But basically she talks about this um, location, how it's been through all these periods of transformation, all these different uses, and it's been burned and it's been pillaged and built up and then burned, pillaged and built up. And the end of the quote is ruin is a gift. Ruin is the road to transformation. And I remember first reading that and just bursting into tears at the height of my illness. And it was this quote, which then followed me around throughout my recovery and still, you know, helps me now. Um, 
because it's so true. It's, you know, you're handed this opportunity and it's a matter of what you choose to do with it. Um, if, you're, if you are given that chance to, you know, really look at this as something you can be intentional with and, and what do you want to get out of it as opposed to like being dragged through this process, right? Um, there's a couple of different ways you can look at recovery. Yeah, I like that. I like the idea of being an active participant and making it the purpose of recovery to be giving you the opportunity to live the life that you're actually really passionate about living because having an eating disorder certainly doesn't align with that passion, does it, or that value. It's So if you do, if you approach it with that mentality that I am building a life that is actually going to be joyous to wake up to rather than recovery is something that's being forced upon me and it's not something I want to participate in, you know, it's it can be a whole different journey, isn't it? Yeah, and I think, look, we've got to be accountable for why people feel that way. Um, that's how treatment has been set up. That's how awareness has been set up. That's how, you know, discourse has been set up around eating disorders, that we have these unwilling, oh, non-compliant um, patients or clients. And I sort of feel a similar way. I used to have a very strong opinion about, you know, pro-eating disorder spaces. I was very angry at them for a very long time because I didn't I didn't engage I didn't contribute but I blurk and I learned some really really dangerous behaviors that I used so when I went into recovery I was not happy with them um and now I see it differently in that because we have failed these people this population for so long they had to find community and spaces uh and also uh, we put them in treatment settings where it was treatment versus the individual. And then we put them back out in the community without properly healing them. And then they'd come back into the setting and in, they just became increasingly uh, uh, cynical, angry, jaded. I mean, I, you can't blame anyone for arriving at that conclusion. Um, so I think that's what I love the most about finding coaching and finding Carolyn is that it made sense to me to be compassionate and to be collaborative um, because no one's going to save you but you but until we empower people they can't save themselves if it's you're bad and you're wrong uh, you're non-compliant uh, then the not only is the onus off them but uh, we're leaving them with this conclusion that uh, unless it's terrible, then they can't recover. Unless it's hell to recover, then they're not recovering. And that's just, it just doesn't have to be like that. No. Oh, I love that. And thank you for voicing that as well, that treatment can be so dehumanizing for eating disorder patients. You know, I don't think it's at all uncommon to hear things like, and it can, it has its place, um, this phrase, but it can be belittling in some um, context, contexts, but I remember being told by someone very frequently to the point where I just didn't want to say anything that, oh, that's the eating disorder talking. Oh, yeah. And that can be very frustrating because yes, sometimes you are speaking on behalf of your eating disorder. And I understand that, but there are times when you're voicing a valid concern or you have something that you genuinely want to be heard from your point of view and to be told something like, no, that's just your eating disorder. We're just going to discard that. Um, that can be very frustrating. Was that in a treatment setting or like a treatment professional? Yeah, that was a psychiatrist 
Yeah, yeah, I know. Right? There's um, a trend there. Yeah, because I work as part of treatment teams. So sometimes I have to very gently have a bit of a chat about like, well, maybe we could think about it this way, like when we talk to them about this, because that's not helping. Um, yeah, that is really frustrating. And that's part of that old school, very outdated uh, treatment approach and sort of treatment um, structure, uh, which is so, you know, it's really dogpiling on, you know, this person who's so, so, so vulnerable. And it's so frustrating because part of what we need to teach people is that your eating disorder is an alarm system and it's a spokesperson for the most vulnerable, wounded, anxious, terrified part of you. And if you've got a team of people ganging up on that person and, you know, telling them they're bad and they're wrong and they're again, non-compliant or, uh, it is, I mean, I remember when my psychologist taught me this amazing concept called self-compassion and I was like, I can be kind to myself. And she was like, not only can you, you probably should. I was like, oh, wow, this is really, this is revolutionary. <laughs> um, and I said to her, but you know, that eating disorder part of me. And she said, Mia, if you came across a group of like five people and four of them were pretty confident and one of them was, really self-conscious and really insecure and really sensitive and anxious and overwhelmed would you be kind to everyone in that group but that person and I was like no the opposite she's like well that's that's what we've got to do with eating disorder you know it's been trying to protect and take care of all this stuff for so long it's ill-equipped but it's it was the only thing that showed up when nothing else did and now we're trying to take this stuff away from it that it's been trying to carry and hold for so long of course it's gonna freak out no one else sort of showed up at it um and that made so much sense to me so when I hear about these treatment experiences that people have it really frustrates me and breaks my heart because I think once you give people that impression it's very hard to undo that expectation I can tell when I, I start with a client who's had that kind of revolving door of hospital and you know different treatment settings the first thing we've got to do is build trust and break down that wall because they're so um traumatized they're so unwilling because they don't want to go through that again you know they've sort of put their trust in these systems which have um really let them down repeatedly and it's been their only option so what else were they going to do um but i think we're getting the word out and lived experience is such an important part of that. You know, we've got to listen to people who have been on the inside. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, I think that probably is, is the biggest change in the space has been voices um, coming from the inside. Yes. And I think that has been really pivotal in the way that change has been brought about on a systemic level recently. I think because so long lived experience was kind of something that was almost shunned from the eating disorder space I think people were like oh eating disorders tend to be a bit you know, I'm going to use the word contagious and I obviously don't mean that in a literal sense but behaviors can be picked up and you know mirrored in different settings um but it's with that lived experience when someone is fully recovered that can be what provides you with that actual like tangible hope that things can get better and that recognition of what is really difficult you know like that 
having an eating disorder is really difficult, but it also does serve a purpose and we have to acknowledge that and show compassion towards ourselves for suffering because I'm not sure you will be able to resonate with this, but I think we beat ourselves up for merely even having an eating disorder, you know, and someone saying, no, actually, yeah, you're right. It is ill-equipped, but it is serving a purpose and it's serving you and it has protected you for a long, long time albeit maladaptively um it's serving a great a great role in your life yeah and if we don't listen we miss out on all the clues right if it's been if it's been trying to perform that function and we need the healthy part of you to step in well we've got to listen out for what eating disorder has been trying to take care of has it been trying to fill the role of connecting with other people right has it been trying to fill the role of helping you manage trauma helping you manage anxiety has it been filling the role of you know helping you feel secure where maybe in your home environment you didn't feel secure and you didn't feel safe what are all the clues if we can't just take someone's entire coping uh, uh, skill set away without giving them something first the way you know people come to me and they're like you're going to take this away from me I'm like not only won't I I can't like I can't make you do anything you're not willing to do I can work with you and collaborate with you and give you a framework and if you want to do it sweet but I can't make you do anything you don't want to do but what ends up in fact the client I was talking to before we jumped on this call has reached this point where she's finally realized you weren't going to take anything away from me you are going to crowd out the eating disorder. We make it redundant. We put it out of a job. We bring in more connection and help seeking. We bring in distraction and coping mechanisms. We bring in positive self-talk. We bring in passions and purpose and creativity and uh, adventure. We bring in life goals. And who do you want to be in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years? All right, let's bridge that gap. Let's actually do the stuff that's going to get you there. Uh, it's not about amputation. It's about, I just don't need it anymore. You know, there's just no space. I think people have a fear that if we take eating disorder away, they'll lose their identity. They'll lose their coping skills. Where in essence, that's all in there. It's being suppressed. Eating disorder is kind of like expanded itself and you're down there all squashed down. That true sort of self is all contained. And as eating disorder takes up less space, healthy self just sort of expands out and takes up what eating disorder was kind of crowding out. Um, so yeah, I think that, I think there's just a few different ways that we can help people approach it in a way that is less daunting and maybe a bit more exciting and therefore a bit more motivating um, that you're not having anything taken from you. You're being given a bunch of stuff, which just means you get a better deal at the end of the day. Oh, absolutely. And it's really, really refreshing to hear that recovery can be this exciting prospect and not something that's so daunting. You know, there is the potential that not only potential, but the reality is that your life will bloom, you know, with recovery and with learning to deal with whatever it is your eating disorder is being adopted to cope with. You know, when you learn to do that in a healthy way, your your life does evolve and blossom. And it's it's just trusting in the people that are helping you along the way and having faith that they're not they're not leading you to this land of abandonment from your eating disorder where you're nothing and you are you know identityless and purposeless you know you're actually being guided to this place of where you get to be you your real you and there's help along the way I think 
Will you speak to your experience with coaching and what it is like and how your lived experience enables you to do what you do? Oh, so I, well, I first wanted to be a journalist. So that's what I went to uni for. I was at Charles Sturt and Bathurst uh, studying journalism. I had to drop out because of my eating disorder. Um, And the reason I wanted to get into journalism is part of that whole sort of loving that underdog story, you know, where there is injustice, being able to tell that story, being able to highlight that story um, and the creativity side of it as well. I love to write. I love to create. And I ended up being able to do that with my channel. I get to tell the stories I want to tell to an audience um, and create and, uh, you know, spotlight things that are important to me. And that was pretty fulfilling. Uh, I worked in finance. Uh, I was very lucky to stumble into a career that, you know, could support me and, and was interesting and engaging, but it wasn't fulfilling. It wasn't sort of, um, it didn't feel purposeful. So as I started to get better and I was obviously advocating and then more in that official role as Butterfly's ambassador, Butterfly were the ones who said, have you heard about this thing, coaching? And I was like, no, talk to me about it, you know, coaching is a bit general as far as, you know, life coaching and, you know, not to denigrate the great life coaches out there, but it's a little bit of a, it's a broad term that can be a bit dodge, you know. Um, And I remember I went and spoke on a panel for an event um, and I was on a panel with a psychologist and I think it was a dietitian slash trainer. And afterwards they said, do you do this professionally? And I was like, no, I just, you know, do it sort of voluntarily. Um, as an advocate and then I had a couple of people come up to me and they're like can I work with you I was like if you want to do some investment banking together we can work together but not with this and so it was kind of in the back of my head and then obviously heard about what Carolyn was doing and I knew of Carolyn right back from day one so I heard about Carolyn through a book I would not recommend to people going through recovery but I did read at the time because I didn't realize how triggering it was it was an autobiography by an actress um, who Carolyn treated. So I um, always knew of Carolyn in the back of my mind uh, with this recommendation from Butterfly and a couple of people asking me, I, I went looking. And Carolyn, just to give people background, is Carolyn Coston. She's a therapist. She is one of you know the world leading experts in eating disorders and she has her own lived experience. So she was essentially like the first self-disclosing uh, recovered therapist uh, and she identified this gap after running hospital programs and starting Montanito a residential facility in America that there was this gap when people came out with the practical side of recovery going to cafes going to restaurants cooking grocery shopping going clothes shopping um, the actual day-to-day implementation of skill sets like dialoguing like distraction actually getting people to do the stuff they've got to do on an hourly basis to get them to their you know bigger goals of where they want to go in recovery so she started up recovery coaching um as an accreditation and she has absolute oversight so she marks everything you do you have to do an internship you have to work with clients that she's supervising she listens to everything she does not hold back with her feedback (laughs) she's very clear about what she thinks of what you're doing um, and so I got certified uh, through the Carolyn Coston Institute, which is the only place I would ever do it and the only place I would ever recommend uh, as far as a certification in this area. 
and started working with clients. Um, then within a few months, I had a wait list of about 100 people. There's about 180 people on the wait list now, which just speaks to the need. There's so much uh need people there's so many people needing help out there um it's incredibly fulfilling it is really in the trenches with people it is on an hourly daily basis helping people get into the weeds of their thinking they will send me dialogues between their healthy self and eating disorder self where they're getting stuck and I send them back prompts try this respond with this I'm the eating disorder self whisperer we've got to get eating disorder self quiet and this is how we do it um, eating with them, whether it's in person or over Zoom. We're going to have pizza. It's the best part of my job. We're going to have a croissant. We're going to have chocolate. I'll have ice cream at nine o'clock in the morning because a client in America is having it in the evening. You know, it's, it's not a terrible part of the job. Um, going clothes shopping with them. That is such a harrowing experience at certain points of recovery for people and just having that extra bit of help and having a, a proactive way that we're going into that experience. Um, uh, you know, we work through the eight keys books. We're actually doing practical assignments, helping them do some of this deeper personal development work. What it is not is not uh, the psychology aspect. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a dietitian, but I am taking uh, the lead from those treatment professionals to put the stuff that needs to get done in place. If someone's working on a food, then we are setting a goal around that this week. If they need to eat breakfast earlier, then we are setting a goal around that this week. It's really uh, taking these broad things we know we need to do and helping people break it down into something that is actionable and achievable. Um, and it is the greatest joy. It, it's hard work. I mean, it is. Uh, there are days when people are on cloud nine and there are days when they are down you know, really in the thick of it um, and you, you're walking alongside them at every single turn. Um, but if anybody is interested in becoming a coach, we need more of you. <laughs> um, and luckily the treatment space, given it is a relatively new approach or a new uh, area in the field, they have very quickly embraced it, hearing from psychiatrists, hospital settings, psychologists, dietitians all the time who are like, where can we get more coaches? Um, very quickly, it's been uh, identified what a difference having that day-to-day -day support has made. It's just been um, night and day. Oh, absolutely. And I think outside of coaching, an individual with an eating disorder who's able to access treatment, even if they're getting a multidisciplinary team approach to their eating disorder, they might get maximum three hours a week with a professional um and I think having a coach you know having an eating disorder is not a nine to five thing you know it is 24 7 365 days a year and having a coach is like you know you can I'm you're like contactable right around the clock essentially it's well you have your response hours right so yes. I personally have because I work with because of my youtube channel etc uh, my reach means I hear from people all over the world. So I've got to manage those time zones <laughs> without being awake 24 seven. Um, so <laughs> people kind of have their response hours, but uh, it's more so that there's somewhere to put it as opposed to like saving it up for the week and getting into your therapy session and being like, here's every thought I've had for the last week. Can we please go through them? they will send me two or three dialogues and be like, this has happened in the last four hours. And I will go back and prompt them and help them to strategize and to go back and say, okay, did you try this distraction? 
have you tried messaging this person? Can mum sit with you for that meal? And helping them look ahead the next even two hours or 10 hours or 24 hours as opposed to, so what happened this week? Oh, it was a nightmare and you can't remember half of it because it feels like it was a year ago, even though it was like three days ago, right? Um, so it really depends on the coach, but you, I'm contactable at all hours. So my inbox is like this nice place. They can just go and vent and, you know, put all their feelings and all their observations. And it's so powerful for me too, because I'm seeing the eating disorder and how it operates in real time. And then the patterns, oh, in the evening, you tend to hit this anxiety spike. Or did you notice when you saw that person, you had a little bit of a low, just like the last time you saw them. Maybe we don't want to interact with that person so much right now. It's really interesting, the data that you get back and then how that can then help you to kind of guide them Um and meet them where they are and, and, you know, help them in real time. It's, it's, um, it's a real asset to have that kind of open door policy. Absolutely. And I bet you only wish you had had the access to a coach when you were going through this. For sure. Like I said, like I had my GP who was phenomenal. Um, he studied psychology. So he was, you know, we have, we have a lot of issues with our GPs, and how they screen for eating disorders and a lot of inappropriate responses that we hear about from GP. So in that way, I was unbelievably lucky. Um, and my psychologist was phenomenal as well. However, it was that thing of, you know, I would go home to an empty apartment and not just think about what am I going to have for dinner? It would then be, I would think about every meal and snack ahead of me. And I remember once my housemate found me, I was standing in front of the fridge and I hadn't even seen him walk in like five times. And he was just like, you have been standing with the fridge door open for like 90 minutes before it starts to defrost. Can you just like give it a break for two? And I was like, oh, I felt like I came out of a walking coma because it is that overwhelming that you just get paralyzed. So to have someone where you can even just say, I feel paralyzed and they can kind of get things moving and get you to just start exploring what is the next tiniest thing that we can do progress is progress no matter how big or small how can we get that sort of unstuck and then we'll see where it goes um so yeah it's uh i think most coaches would say part of the reason they got into it is that they can see the value it would have added to their own experience um and the lived experience component the fact that someone can sit across from you at a table and eat with you or you know, there's so many, you have to use your experience responsibly. That's a big part of the training. You're not just freely sharing, you know, the darkest parts of your eating disorder, unless it has some relevance to what that person is reporting or going through. Um, but just to see that innate trust and understanding of like, oh, you have sat here and felt this and now you don't anymore. All right. I want to bridge that gap for myself. Um, you know, I'm about to do a, a chat with Carolyn about the power of lived experience because when you look at that chain, she recovered. Look at how many, no doubt, the ripple effect has probably at this point helped millions of people. Uh, because of Carolyn, I became a coach, and through my channel, the two, uh, one of the coaches who I have hired, she found out about coaching through the channel. So this ripple effect of lived experience is just has the um, has the capacity to be endless. Uh, that domino effect just keeps going. Absolutely. Mia, in the, along the, along the lines of hope and being 
of hope to people and like a a model of recovery and what recovery can be like would you like to explain if there was <laughs> perhaps the, <laughs> the difference between how your life looked and your days looked when you were in the midst of your eating disorder versus what your life and your days look like now um for the uh, in my eating disorder just chaos and loneliness are probably the two keywords the the noise in my head was cacophonous and it was so endless it even followed me into my sleep you know it woke me up at night um and it was even like I said I I functioned very very well I had great friends I had a great job I don't remember a lot of it you know, I went to, I remember before I went, I left London, I did a small trip by myself through Barcelona, Marrakesh, Rome, back to London, and then I went back to Sydney. I don't remember a lot of that. I have photos, I met great people, I, you know, um, think that I ate some good food, I'm not sure. Um, I remember, I remember counting steps, I remember having panic attacks about people asking me in the hostel, like come for a few drinks with us. And I didn't go purely because I couldn't accommodate that in what my eating disorder thought I was allowed to do and have that day. Um, so it totally uh, colored everything in only you know, a negative sense. Uh, it destroyed temporarily lifelong friendships, friendships I've had since I was four or five years old, which were put on pause um, and potentially at the time I thought might have been lost forever. I was lucky that they were not. Um, my life now, my one aim when my psychologist said, what's your biggest aim? What do you want to get out of recovery? And I was like, I want to be calm. And she was like, that's it. I was like, that's it. I just want to be calm. And that is probably the best way to describe the space in my head now, what I try to achieve in my life now, even when I'm busy, even when I've got a million things going on or, you know, I'm, uh, you know, back to back or whatever it is in terms of my inner self is a state of calm and peace that I never thought would have been possible. So much connection, uh, so many good people in my orbit who I'm so lucky to say, you know, came back, who forgave and, you know, embraced me again in my recovery um, new people who came into my life because of recovery, you know, colleagues I have, friends I have, um, opportunities which I never could have imagined or dreamed of. Meeting and, you know, having a friend in Carolyn who is just like a goddess, you know, um, who was such a light in my own recovery, even if she didn't know it. It's night and day. It's, you know, when people say things like, you'll never regret recovery, these things become you know, um, empty in that they're repetitive, right? Um, but we say it for a reason, you know, people do not regret being recovered. People do not regret the hard work and the effort and the sacrifice that it takes to get through this process. Um, it is, I used to say it was the hardest thing I'd ever done until my dad passed away. I took care of him through cancer. And my grandmother passed away a short time after that. That's the hardest thing I've ever been through. But second only to that is recovery. But it has this weird duality that it's also the best thing I've ever done. I don't know that there's a lot of things that 
can be as innately challenging and confronting and terrifying that you can also say, oh, you couldn't pay me any amount of money in exchange for that. There is nothing I would give you to undo even a percentage of it. Um, so if anyone is doubtful, uh, I was too. And so is everyone who says they don't regret it. Um, but uh, don't hesitate. If you are hesitating, welcome to the club. That means that you qualify for recovery. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Do you recall like a pertinent moment in your recovery where you kind of were far enough along that you had momentum and you you were beginning to appreciate the life that was unfolding because of recovery and you went, yes, this is why I'm doing it? That's a great question. I don't think I've been asked that before. Um, they came pretty quickly. Like I, no one is 100% ready, but I was pretty, like, I was pretty done. Like when, and this is the thing, I don't like the narrative that we have to hit rock bottom to make change, right? I think that's so dangerous. Um, but I think that contributed to why I went through this euphoria so quickly. But for me, um, I do remember a day being at a pub in Paddington and I was there with some friends and my mom and my sister and brother-in-law and I'd ordered a steak and I had a couple of glasses of red wine. And I remember it was the first time someone took a plate away, like the waiter came and took the plate away and the plate was empty and, you know, can I have another glass of wine? And there had not been a single thought, hesitation, bit of anxiety. I had laughed until my stomach hurt. I was so, and it was like an out-of-body experience. Everyone was just there kind of carrying on and I just sat back and watched. And, of course, then the tears came. And then, of course, the family panicked like, oh, no. Oh, no. I was like, no, no. These are <laughs> good. <laughs> Get used to them. And then I literally just cried every day for a year. And I still do. I still, you know, I have these moments of what if I wasn't here for this, you know, sitting across the table from my dad at this little, you know, um, restaurant down the road from where he lived in Massachusetts and holding hands with him and you know really telling each other we loved each other you know and really meaning it going to a friend's wedding in upstate New York and like in this beautiful ballroom and just sitting around and being like what if I wasn't here for this night or you know on a road trip with a girlfriend down the coast and just having this like time stops and you just observe yourself and go what if I wasn't here for this I still have that 10 years later where I at least once in a while will just go and I you know I was saying this the other day at a fundraising thing you know when we're trying to get people to give to the cause and we've got to take them into all this uh you know uh not so good stuff about the state of funding etc and I was I wanted to leave them with what I know to be so true which is that everyone who I see go through this process who becomes recovered they live so fully and so presently and with so much gratitude and so much, you know, uh, we can have a lot of regret and a lot of grief about what we've mis missed out on, what our eating disorder has taken. If you get through this process, the way you will live will make up for that in spades because we live in a way that is different to how everybody else lives. We live in a way which really appreciates what we could have missed out on what it was like to live muted or numb or removed or not here at all 
um, we live very differently to other people. Um, and that is, I think, something we need to really impress on people that, you know, there's dark stuff here, but uh, the what you put in will, you know, will be far outdone by what you get out of it and how you live beyond that. Oh, that's, that's so, today, I apologize. that was beautiful. What are you talking about? That I was locked in a box and I've not spoken to human beings for like a year. I just... Oh my goodness. That was all goosebump worthy. I was just covered in goosebumps for like five minutes. <laughs> it's like, I think too, because you can even be in moments that are supposed to be beautiful in your eating disorder. And I'm sure you would have got this traveling. So you might be standing in the middle of Rome and you're like, this is supposed to be spectacular, but I am so swept up in the narratives of my mind and the dialogue that's going on in my head in this eating disorder that I can't even appreciate how spectacular this moment is. Yeah. And the physiological distress, like there is, you know, we know from research what happens to the mind. I mean, you know, the ever quoted Minnesota starvation experiment that physiologically what happens to the mind and the body when it's not nourished properly, because that can look like a whole lot of different things, right? Uh, you put a mental illness on top of that and then potentially comorbidities like depression, anxiety and trauma and all these reasons why people develop eating disorders in the first place. There is just no way that you can be present in your life. Like when people say to me that Mia, I get more done and I'm like, not possible. But Mia, it helps me with my anxiety more than if I didn't have it not possible it is the source of anxiety it's the source like we're not just I'm not like hypothesizing we know this from a medical perspective let alone how we know the brain operates when it's distressed right so um yeah absolutely such a such a valid point yeah it is just such a it's sliding doors like how you and the fact you get one go like you get one turn at this at what point does it end? At what point does it say, yeah, you get to live fully and freely now? It doesn't. It's not going to leave until you make it leave. Um, and the fact that you get one shot at this life thing, I mean, we've all got to reach our point where we fully connect to that feeling of like, yeah, what am I going to do with this? Yeah. I really resonate with this. Someone put it to me in treatment and it's really stuck with me for a really long time, but I would love to get to the really ripe old age of 90 years old and be sitting in a nursing home and looking back upon my life having built all these incredible experiences and have all these really genuine happy memories and not always happy but be you know having felt like I lived and did everything I wanted to do I was regretless and I chased every dream and you cannot do that with if you have an eating disorder in your life and I know for a fact if I First of all, I don't think anyone, it doesn't matter how your eating disorder presents or manifests physically, I don't think anyone would survive to 90 having sustained an eating disorder for that length of time. Um, but getting to 90, if you did have an eating disorder all that time, I can't imagine you would look back with like pride or happiness for having sustained it that whole time. You know, I don't think there's any kind of disordered euphoria that comes from engaging in behaviors that's sustainable or leads to any kind of enduring happiness like that. And that is probably why I think recovery will be the most amazing thing you ever do because it, it means you actually have complete 
the complete capacity to live the life you want to live and be proud of it when you do leave the world. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I, I've got a bit of flack for this in the past, as we all do, um, where I was talking about that very concept of like when you're 80, because I had this, it was a photo of me at my sister's wedding and I was her bridesmaid and I had these like ridiculous spanks on purely because <laughs> otherwise it was um, the dress, it was silk and it would just like, anyway, it was, it was, a, it was a static issue anyway. And <clears throat> they were so ridiculous. I was lifting up my dress to show my mum, like my sister was getting ready. It was just the three of us in the room with the photographer and the photographer whipped around and I just dropped the dress and I am leaning back, like cackling, laughing. And I hated, I was only, a, you know, a short time into recovery then. I hated that photo. I absolutely love it now because all the, the only thing I associate with it is that day and how, you know, it was to be with my mum and my sister helping her, you know, get ready to get married to my brother-in-law who's, you know, is a brother to me. And it really uh, stuck with me that that's true of every phase of your life, that you're going to get to the end of your life and especially like I am someone who wants to have a child and potentially grandchildren. And when they run up to me with a photo, like I did with my grandmother who looked like a freaking movie star, but she couldn't have cared less. Right. And I would run up to her and be like, where was this taken? And you're doing, and like, where were you? And she isn't sitting there going like, well, don't you want to know how many calories I ate that day? Or, you know, and this is yeah, my now, step I'm, count. <laughs> yeah. I'm not running up to her going like, what size were your jeans in this photo? Like, you know, it's, it's not the sum of who, we think other people are why is this this parameter of worth that we put on ourselves and when we zoom out like time and gravity is coming for us all you know at some point uh we're all gonna we're all gonna reckon with that our bodies are not static um they're not that worth investing in from a worth and identity perspective um and you know when the people i love have passed away their appearance their physicality as far as how it looks is not what you miss and it's not what you value and it's not what you focus on um so i i'm always reluctant because yes people can absolutely develop eating disorders at any age but the reason we say things like in 10 years or when you're 80 or when you're 90 do you want to look back is because even if you are 89 wouldn't and you passed away a year later wouldn't that 12 months even fighting back and getting as much freedom as you got would wouldn't that be worth it isn't the only thing worse than an eating disorder for four or five or 50 or 60 years an eating disorder for 60 years in one day that's the reason why we try to reinforce there because I hear it all the time Imogen I have people reach out to me who are like it's too late for me I wish I'd done it 10 years ago and I'm like you're going to feel that way in 10 years do it now that time's going to pass anyway you'll be lucky if you're here like we're all lucky to get another day but statistically start fighting it now you know I hear from people who really do say there were so many points where it could have been different and it's like yeah that's right now if you're reaching out to me saying it could have been different that point is presenting itself for you right at this moment it could be different here you are let's do it yeah. let's yeah. create that change yeah oh that's spectacular would you like to explain from your fully recovered perspective and what it's actually like when you've reached that place of full recovery and peace what your relationship towards your body is like now 
So full recovery is so individual. I want to be clear. That's why I love Callan's um, definition because it is very flexible. It's not about BMIs. It's not about weights. It's about, you know, um, finding worth and purpose beyond the body and food and, you know, shape, et cetera, taking its proper perspective. I really identify with that. Uh, but it's very nuanced. You know, there are people who are going to feel like they can get there. There are people who are going to be cynical about it going into the process. You don't have to believe you're going to get there to get there, essentially. I didn't know full recovery was a thing until I was a couple of years in. Um, and it made the world of difference uh, knowing that, you know, there would be an end point. It's not like Hogwarts, a letter does not arrive, being like, welcome. <laughs> welcome to your fully recovered life. Um, <laughs> It just becomes apparent over time, oh, when's the last time I used that behaviour? Or, oh, this summer I went shopping for bikinis and it wasn't a disaster. I remember I went on a first date where I had to go snorkelling in a bikini and I was totally cool with that, whereas, like, two years before, I would have gone into witness protection to <laughs> avoid that date so I didn't have to wear a bikini in front of anybody. Um or you'll notice, like I said, that someone picks up a plate and you've eaten everything on it and you just don't care. You just care more about how good the steak was and how, how much you laughed that day. Uh, it's a collection of moments and then this confidence that grows, you know, as that intersects with the time that's passing. Um, it is, it's wonderful and it's, like I said, euphoric and then it just normalises and then it's not, anything special which is the best thing is that it should just neutralize and normalize right you shouldn't I don't believe people should live in like a recovery identity and sphere for the rest of their lives um and it is I think the thing that people should know is that we don't actually go to everybody else's normal because what is that in a disordered society right just because <clears throat> I always say just because it's common doesn't mean it's normal. <clears throat> just as dieting is common doesn't mean it's normal. Just because disordered practices around exercise is uh, common does not mean it's normal. What we are aiming for in this recovery process is going beyond everybody else's quote unquote normal. A freedom which even, you know, the again, quote unquote, ordered uh, population will never know. You know, I know people who are not disordered who really, truly, firmly believe that their love and self-acceptance is going to come out of a body size or like a, you know, certain weight. And we are forced into a corner and come out swinging, having to do work that a lot of people are never forced to do, which really makes you reckon with all of those beliefs, which everyone is just breathing like it's air. And we can see the fumes. We know what it is. Um so that's the thing. You are not investing all this time and energy just to be disordered like everybody else. Uh, you have a real opportunity to, it's kind of like a conspiracy theory. I felt like once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. Like it was like the matrix, like, oh my God, I can see the reality of this universe that we're living in. Um, so the investment is so worthwhile because it's more than most people will ever experience. So Relationship with body is very peaceful. I still have the occasional bad body image day. I have endometriosis, which is a chronic illness, which really impacts 
like today, very bloated day. I'm in a pair of pants, which is three times larger than my usual pair of pants. I have about six different sizes of pants just in case because my body fluctuates due to this chronic illness. Um, but most of the time it's pretty neutral. A lot of the time it's, you look cute today and then walking out the door. Um, <laughs> I love that. Which I could only do because I didn't have a goal of liking or loving my body. I just wanted to not care about it that much. So now I can be like, yeah, love the gym pants. That looks great. And then just move on with my day. Or it's just not even looking and just getting dressed and going on with my life because it just doesn't tell me that much. I don't weigh myself. I don't use behaviours. I have a very intuitive relationship with food I eat all kinds of foods I don't have any restrictions I have not done any kind of diet or I've never been vegan I've never been keto I've never done any of that stuff intermittent fasting uh, none of it appeals um, it's just normal it's just you know it's where I hope everybody can get to um, and it's more about the identity it's being someone beyond a disorder and beyond a recovery process informed by those things but not um but not living in that space anymore is probably the most important part of it but it's very my definition my experience does not have to be anybody else's right um if people can hear something in there that sounds good to them good might be something to explore okay go and look up carolyn costin immediately <laughs> yeah well do you know what i've asked that question of other recovered um, individuals before and not one person has ever said oh my body image is perfect all the time yeah. my i love my body i love food i still think about food all the time it's still the highlight of my day no one said that everyone's kind of been like you know it's here and there but um my life's fantastic so that's what matters anyway you know robots right like recovery is not like a desensitization of you as a human like i have no feelings about anything ever we still are in a diet culture entrenched disordered world um we're gonna like i see stuff it pisses me off more than anything like i have friends who are very diet culture ingrained you know people in my life where I'm just like can we change the channel I am so bored but please yeah yeah but I mean I also you know will be having a bad endometriosis day and yeah I'll have a, a thought of like oh I just wish that my body would and I'm like you know what that's not something to lean into that's an alarm system you're tired you're hormonal go easy on yourself. This is not an easy path, chronic illness. You know, you've got to be really gentle today. Um, it tells me something valuable. I don't invest in it. Whereas other people who haven't had to do this work, listen to that and go, oh, I'll start a bikini program, like a bikini body program and I'll lose some weight and that'll fix it. And it's Oh, fine. yes. Yeah. Well, that'll make someone some money, but it's not going to be you. Yes, exactly. Or I'm going to, yeah, nearby. I was going to say certain person's chef's name and I thought oh better not um but I think I know who you're gonna say yeah I mean I'm not sure if chefs should ever give out dieting advice but they do or, or, or medical advice no. I think about the same yeah that's even more red that's an even bigger red flag right there but yeah I I think it is that silver lining to having had an eating disorder is we kind of get to live beyond that really unfortunately quote unquote normalized disorderedness that yeah. so much of the population lives with 
Yeah. And I mean, that's good for us, right? I mean, we... we around you like your bullshit detector is so much better and it rubs off on you like um probably particularly my mum and my girlfriend Josie like Josie will send me stuff and she's like all riled up and I used like I feel like I've got out of I've graduated out of my like riled up um period of my life I don't know why um I see stuff and I'm like I see it I think I see it more from like a um clinical perspective now where I'm like well you know it's out there. Let's be realistic. Now I think more so about like, how do we help people navigate that? Right. Yes. Like it's, we can't get rid of it as quickly as we'd like to. It is getting better, but we, people can't recover in a bubble. How do I help people navigate this? But I do love, like my mum will send me something and she's so fired up. She's like, did you see this on 60 minutes or, oh, this ad came up and it was terrible. And I'm like, oh, I've made, this is my legacy. I've made people so angry. <laughs> I've, you know, really caused people a lot of distress about, you know, coming, you know, becoming aware of diet culture. What a, what a fabulous gift. Um, but it, it, but really like it, it just by your own, like whether or not you do it publicly or privately, your recovery is so powerful, like not just for yourself, but potentially for other people too, to kind of tap into their own stuff or their own thinking or how they're unkind to themselves or how they limit their own thinking about themselves and their value um you may be doing more than you even realize you know just by virtue of being brave enough to you know try to heal some of this stuff in yourself um and then there are people who will not get it and that's none of your business and that is not something that you are responsible for right you are you protect your own recovery um but you don't have to force anyone down the same path as you or get people to understand some people just will not understand no, and sometimes it is, it's much easier, right, to just pick your battles and go, okay, you have a nice life. I'm going to go lead mine now. Yeah. 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 When you're, uh, you know, uh, approaching summer and all you can think about is how anxious you're going to feel going to that wedding as opposed to like what summer could have in store for you, I know which lane I would pick. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> Thank goodness. Mia, where can our listeners find you on the internet? What can, where can we go? All over the place. So as far as the coaching side of things, if they go to, I always get this wrong, what a fantastic businesswoman. Um, <laughs> beyondbodycoach.com. Uh, I am, my, my books are closed. I have an 18-month wait list, but I do have two coaches, Shelby in LA and Anne-Claire in Belgium, who is fluent in English and French. Um, and they currently have some openings. What's happened? <laughs> I'm so sorry. My dog just sneezed. <laughs> um, came out the other end. So that's a nice. <laughs> he just walked into the room. He was like, <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I need you to bear witness to this sound I'm making out of my face. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I was, I was like, oh my God, I can't conceal that. <laughs> I, but Shelby in LA. <laughs> Shelby in LA and Anne Claire in uh, Belgium. Um, they have uh, some limited spaces at the moment, but if you get in touch via our website, you know, we can always put you on the wait list and put you in touch with whoever has earliest availability. Um, uh, you can find me on Instagram, what Mia did next, YouTube, what Mia did next. They're probably the big ones. Um, uh, but anything else that's coming up? No. You know, just behind the scenes stuff that hopefully will be announced soon. So keep an eye on oh, that. Oh, that's 
That's exciting. Mia, are you giving us this cliffhanger? without a spoiler. <laughs> I love it. No, that's amazing. I will link all of your phenomenal work in the show links below so everyone can have a look. Uh, thank you so much for being here. And I am sorry for that interruption that Odie just made. He had to brighten me up for the afternoon. Yeah. Awake and ready to go for the rest of the time. I, I was like, didn't even see him walk in, but he made himself known. That was him just voicing his presence, making sure he got some attention. He doesn't like that when it's not on him for a moment. But thank you for being here. Thank you for gracing all of our listeners with your presence. And we can't wait. I know I'm speaking on behalf of everyone here for that that exciting new thing, the new prospects that are on the horizon. I can't wait. Keep your fingers crossed. Let's hope it happens. Oh, okay. That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mia. Awesome, Jen. Thank you for having me. Thank you.